Welcome to a special episode of Conic Detrimental. Dan Lost, Dan Wallach. One topic this episode, that is Deshaun Watson. Dan, before we, we jump in, certainly that's a topic that we've been covering a lot. You had mentioned on our last episode that we, uh, maybe both collectively, we've been getting Watson fatigue. I feel like you don't feel that way anymore. Is that is that accurate? No, because finally... We have some new material and not just simply Tony Busby, you know, just trying to gin up some interest in the case in order to force a settlement. We have sort of the case taking on new dimensions, new participants, uh, testimony, depositions. So I think there's a new legal front that's opened in the battle involving not just the, you know, Deshaun Watson, but the Houston Texans, potentially the Cleveland Browns and at the league level. So, uh, you know, take it away. This is now, I think, worthy of Deshaun Watson's. Oh, we should spin off a Deshaun Watson podcast every week. It's basically this podcast. At a certain yeah. point. I think when we last covered this, Dan, we were talking about how Rusty Harden went on a, did a podcast interview with a friend of ours, Gabe Feldman, and was kind of doing a victory lap and how great everything was going and how, you know, uh, two separate grand juries didn't move forward with indictments and how everything was going great. He had met with the NFL investigators for three days and he answered all these questions and everything was going great. You know, I, I thought it was odd that Rusty Harden picked a random time to start speaking to uh, the media all of a sudden when he had been very, fairly quiet. So now, Dan, fast forward, we're going to get into this over the life of this episode. But now it seems we know why Rusty Harden randomly started hitting up Radio Row. He did an interview with Gabe Feldman. Then he went on sports radio on Houston and made that um, that ill-advised happy endings comment, which we're going to talk about today. But we, we know, oh, I think we know, the reason for that media push was because of this looming specter of this New York Times article uh, by Jenny Varentis, uh, someone I crossed paths with uh, while I was working at the Giants. So she had an excellent report. You should check it out now. We're going to go over the various headlines, but I guess here's two or three, and then we're going to talk about the tenants that we're going to get to today. But 66 masseuses in a 17-month period. The fact that the Texans might have known about Watson's kind of act conduct and activities ahead of time. Whether Watson was really doing any due diligence into who he was hiring as masseuses you'd think if someone asked you what what did you look into whether this person was a qualified masseuse and Deshaun Watson at the deposition was that wasn't my priority so there is time and time again these allegations that women who were not professional masseuses Watson was finding them on Instagram in different places and yeah, telling them to meet him in a random hotel room that was set up by the Houston Texans so oddities we're going to go over them one by one but that's that's really the big update and all of a sudden from a narrative perspective from a punishment perspective from a actual civil parties being added to the case uh things have changed so dan i'll, I'll take it to you where where do you want to start this i know we have a couple core tenants we want to hit i'll leave it to you where you want to go all right i think we first have to identify the houston texans role in all this because that is the headline that is the one that just kind of took me aback and sort of re-interested me and engaged me in the case again because now we're talking about the nfl uh possibly looking at the texans conduct and the houston texans being added to the existing lawsuit 24 lawsuits as a defendant and that raises issues as to what their what the theory of liability is whether the claims would be timely, and what, if any, role or culpability the Houston Texans have. So I'll kick it to you, Dan, and, and ask you, well, what, what are they guilty of? What, just, just supplying a hotel room or, or, or uh, providing for a, a non-disclosure agreement to, to provide the masseuse? Where is the Texans' culpability if all this is to be believed? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess we could start here, Dan. This is not the first time the Texans have been threatened to have been brought into this litigation. I remember very early on, 
Tony Busby said he was going to investigate whether and to what extent the Texans should be brought in. And I remember, you know, you and I speaking about it as to whether the Texans would be brought in as another, you know, Dan, you know, I, I work for many years in, in defense litigation, bringing the Texas in Texans in as a very large pocket. Deshaun Watson is uh, a man who at least we know is worth at least $230 million with his guaranteed contract with the Browns. But Houston Texans uh, last report by Forbes, I think they're worth 3.7 billion. So the strategy behind bringing them in might just be a financial one. Number one, what they knew ahead of time, I'm not sure of a very clear cause of action to bring them in on, right? Aiding and abetting a sexual assault, that doesn't really seem like a clear charge, Dan. Maybe it's mm. some form of conspiracy, you know, but I guess the other part of it is the, I guess I alluded to it. The Texans set Deshaun Watson up in a hotel room. I think it was called the Houstonian under a, uh, a name of a Houston Texans trainer. And there was another allegation in that New York Times report that they had provided Watson with some type of massage supplies, so whether they <laughs> knew about it, helped hide it with this NDA, which I do want to get into. Actually, Dan, maybe this is a good point. Do you want to explain well, what's going on with this NDA? I think that's probably the biggest part of this case, the biggest story, I guess, coming out sure. of it. Sure. I mean, this all occurs sort of, you know, through the prism, I think, of respondeat superior and vicarious liability that may maybe Deshaun Watson was acting as an agent or acting as a member of the Houston Texans in, wow. in, in going for these massages because the Texans set up the hotel room. They provided him with sort of all, you know, you know, all the necessary, you know, planning and, and uh, making the appointments, the room, the NDA. The Texans played more than just a passive role in this process. This wasn't the Deshaun Watson just going on Instagram and selecting uh, massage therapists willy-nilly at some point. The Texans did play a role at, in, at the very least in knowing about this, uh, and even booking the hotel room. So is there a vicarious liability theory in which Watson's actions can be attributed to the Texans? Yeah, doubt, doubtful. I mean, I, because part of responding at Superior requires someone to be doing something within the scope of their employment or to the betterment of the employer. So I don't know, are you going to say that massages in general are for the betterment of the employer? Maybe, maybe, but I think him hitting up random Instagram uh, massage therapy. Well, that's what trainers do. I mean, that Dan, that goes to the point of whether these people were trained or not. I think I think it certainly falls outside of the scope of his employment. And I think if I was the text, yeah. that's exactly the argument I would make here that we didn't even know what he was doing. Well, actually, I was about to say we don't even know what he's doing, Dan, but then this is where the NDA comes up. And maybe this is a good time to explain explain what happened here. There was one of these alleged, you know, um, one of these 67 massage therapists Who's, who took to Instagram at a certain point in time while he was still a member of the Texans and threatened to reveal Watson's kind of illicit massage conduct. And Watson allegedly had a conversation with the Texans. And the next thing he knew in his locker was an NDA that was provided by the head of Texan security, a former Secret Service member. This head of security put an NDA in his locker. And that's according to Watson's own testimony that he received an NDA from someone with the Houston Texans. And you, you read the New York Times report again, I implore everyone to check it out. It, it's a it's kind of a disturbing read, but an important one. And Watson says that he used this NDA with subsequent massages. And, you know, I maybe even it's sometimes in an incentive. Hey, this is a very professional massage. We even give out NDAs. And I'm like, I don't think Watson knows an NDA is. That's not helpful for the masseuse at all. But Dan, you, you asked me, right? If someone's going to be held on, in on a respondeat superior theory, part of it is, what the employer knew, if the employer knew this conduct was happening. So I was about to say the Texans didn't know, but, you know, there's certainly an argument that they they very much yeah. know what was going on. I think there are fact questions here because, uh, you know, certainly we're going to have to look closely at the law of respondeat superior under Texas law. But if he's acting 
in a sense, within the scope of his employment. And these are massages that the team has sort of, you know, approved or at least arranged in some fashion. He's no longer Deshaun Watson, private citizen. He's Deshaun Watson, quarterback, employee of the Houston Texans. And I wonder how much, how much level of knowledge the Texans are required to have to make this stick under a respondeat superior theory. But most importantly, this is a fact question. And I think there may be enough allegations here in order to take this to a jury. Of course, there are going to be some questions of law, but I also want to focus real quickly. I think you and I had a discussion about the statute of limitations. For most practitioners, you know, tort claims generally have to be brought within four years of the accrual of the cause of action. Texas has a stricter statute of limitations for sexual assault claims and intentional infliction of emotional distress claims which are, it's not sexual assault, it's, it's civil assault. Both of those torts are two-year statute of limitations, and so many of these alleged incidents occurred in, you know, late 20, mid-20, or maybe early 2021, so you could have a scenario where some of the claims are going to be time-barred against the Texans, whereas other claims are going to be timely, and I think that might hasten the rush to bring these additional claims against the Houston Texans ASAP, lest they become time-barred if brought too late. You know, and, and we should mention, there are, it's not just the Houston Texans. Tony Busby spoke about bringing in others that were connected with Watson's camp, so I don't know who these unnamed others are. I could take some guesses, but I certainly don't want to speculate on that. So this lawsuit can get uh, certainly a lot messier. And then, Dan, from a pure legal perspective, people have asked since the life of this case, and I know I've handled my fair share of very long litigation that have gone years. This has this started in, in March 2021. And I said, with COVID, with whatever else, this could easily, easily be two years of discovery and then before you get to trial. And it's probably going to be about there. But, Dan, if you add so many new parties Whatever track you're on in terms of depositions, you got to retake those depositions and you might need to retake them. You know, I don't know how many of these are going to be, but it's going to slow the slow the wheels down. And again, the trial date's supposed to be after the Super Bowl. So you have some time, but uh, that might push things further back. Yeah. And, and certainly the motion practice around the new defendants. I mean, the, the first move that the Texans are going to make upon being sued is they're going to move to dismiss for failure to state a cause of action based maybe on the fact that the elements of the tort aren't there. There's no vicarious liability in any event. And alternatively, the claims are time barred. And that could slow up the case by virtue of the fact that maybe discovery gets stayed during the time the Texans are trying to you know, forestall any, any further attempts to bring them into the case. And that could further delay the trial date, maybe a, a year, two years depending upon you know, how quickly these motions get resolved. I mean, we've already seen through the, through the court docket how slowly this case is moving. It's been well over a year and a quarter since the claims have first been brought, and we're no closer to trial scene than we were half a year ago. So the, the part I'll add before we move to the football stuff, you know, Dan, you talk about the statute of limitations. Uh, I've got a lot of questions about whether another, you know, there still might be a potential for a criminal case to be brought against Watson. So I think this does worth, is worthy of some delving into. Part of this New York Times report, which was messy to say the least, Tony Busby, you know, he, he put out a statement. I'm going to read just the last sentence and then we can get into the rest of it. But it says, I feel hometown in my own hometown and duped. I think the public and all interested were duped as well. Makes you wonder that, that, that. So Tony Busby read the same report that we did, that in the weeks and uh, really the, the seemingly the days of 
the grand jury proceedings that the prosecutor's office was in very close contact with Rusty Harden. Not to say that that's atypical, but the reporting seems to indicate that it was one-sided or lopsided in terms of the prosecutor speaking to Rusty Harden, Deshaun Watts's lawyer, as opposed to the, we'll say, alleged victims and accusers. And then there was that report that uh, had surfaced at the time, but is now coming up again, that of the accusers that were ready to stand and speak before the grand jury, only one was called uh, and the rest of them stood in a waiting room the whole time. So this 24th complaint, and now we're up to 20, I think since we last recorded, two were filed. This 24th complaint, Rusty Harden had an interesting comment. He said he was not aware of the name of this woman ahead of time, Dan, which tells me this might be an individual who has not filed a criminal complaint before. So in theory, yes, you could have another, a new criminal complaints filed and maybe even another grand jury proceeding with respect to this new criminal complaint extent one is filed and any subsequent ones. But that's the worry if you're Deshaun Watson. 67 masseuses in a 17-month period. If you settle all 24 cases right now, what's not to say that a 25th will pop up or a 26th or a 27th? So I don't think, Dan, you and I can sit here today or anyone and say when confidently these cases will end because, Dan, last I checked, 67 minus 24, that's 43, right? There's a number of women out here that just have not come forward that are certainly aware of what's going on. The difficulty of settling any one of these cases, less, let alone all 23, is that once there's a settlement and any aspect of it becomes public, and certainly if Busby's representing you know, all 23, the 44 additional alleged victims, or at least the 44 other masseuses who may have been you know, sort of victimized in the same way, they're going to be incentivized to file lawsuits. And when does this ever end? And from a from an NFL discipline perspective, and I know we're going to address that in the next next phase of our podcast, but how does the how does the NFL, how does Deshaun Watson ever achieve, you know, sort of a finality around, you know, the, the NFL discipline issue? Because each and every one of these alleged instances of sexual misconduct, each one of the 24 is a separate type or separate instance of misconduct. So the league can't just simply impose a global punishment of six games, eight games, 10 games for all 24 lawsuits when an additional 43 women potentially could surface and accuse them of the same conduct. So it becomes almost like a, you know chasing your tail here if you're Deshaun Watson. And for the National Football League, this becomes this perpetual investigation with no end in sight. Because with, with Ezekiel Elliott, he had one alleged victim, right? With Tom Brady, with Adrian Peterson, those were isolated. Ray Rice, those were isolated instances of misconduct to varying degrees of awfulness, of course. But with Watson, you now have 67 individuals who are being incentivized by a civil plaintiff's litigation attorney to bring these cases. It's an, it's an impossibility to, be to bring closure here. To be fair, of the 67, some of them are actually women that have spoken out in support of Deshaun Watson. So there's like the 18 or some that have chosen not to file suit, you know, pretty emphatically, but still a number of people, a number of loose ends. I think that's an easy way to put it. Dan, to your point, though, right, the NFL is allowed to consider everything, right? They're not a court of law. They can consider, right, habit or patterns. But with respect to these 24 cases, we've said it, we'll say it again. These will be tried separately. These will not be one joint class action trial. There'll be 24 separate cases. So there is no assumption that the evidence of whatever happens at the massage number 23 or 22 will come in in the 24th trial. So that's that's what you have to factor in here. The NFL actually might have an easier way to yeah. figure out how to sort these up than uh, you know a trial judge. Dan, you just hit upon the magic concept here without realizing it, I believe. Repeat offender status. 
a repeat offender in the NFL under the personal conduct policy for violating right the the league's domestic violence policy you know could subject the uh the offender to a lifetime banishment i mean that that's the jeopardy that ezekiel elliott had always faced because he was accused you know by by somebody in college and then he was accused before the draft and there were these two different instances and the debate back in 2017 centered on whether if both were considered whether that could jeopardize Ezekiel's uh, future by you know, subjecting him to ban- lifetime banishment, or if the one accusation that he was disciplined for six games for, whether that left him one further offense away from lifetime banishment. Well, if that's true, how do you treat 23 or you know, 23 or 24 cases, 23 of which could be considered repeat offender status. Does that mean repeat offender after you're initially disciplined or repeat based upon you know, multiple instances of the same offense? So that might be a, an area or an issue that hasn't been spoken about or, or considered in any of the analyses done about the case, but that's something he's got to really fear here that the NFL could issue this multiplier and just basically banish him from the league. Well, that's why you come to Conduct Detrimental, because we are two lawyers that think about this stuff very creatively. Dan, here's here's the other part of this. You know, Roger Goodell might have worked himself into a little bit of a corner here, because back in the fall of 2021, about, you know, a little more than uh, six, six, eight months ago, right around there, he said that there was not enough at that point to put Watson on the commissioner's exemplist. So I, I was surprised. I always thought he was going on the exemplist. He did not. So I don't know how someone goes from there's not enough to put him on the exemplist to the guy that I'm, I'm seeing on social media. Again, I said this last time you and I spoke and you raised an eyebrow. I'm seeing people saying if Trevor Bauer can get two years, you know, a year plus is not off the table for Watson. So um, I don't know how the NFL in their head can go from there's not enough to put him on the exemplist, even though they had spoke to all the accusers, even though you and I had read all the complaints, the same stuff is coming out, right? It's just more like more of the same type of accusations. Nothing really, nothing really new has come out, Dan, other than, right, the one that we just talked about. More Where, victims, Texans, more victims counts, yeah, but, you know. But, but, the, but once you're at 20 plus victims, mm. you shouldn't really, you shouldn't need more. You shouldn't need mm. to hear another 20 before Goodell decides to do something. But what is new, Dan, is this Texans allegation. So I, I do think there's something. When we're talking about the Texans, there are two dimensions to their potential exposure here. We've already gone through the civil case. They could be sued for respondeat superior under the same, you know, sex, uh, civil assault, tortious, intentional infliction of emotional distress theory, where they're the sort of responsible party for the actions of, of, of Watson, or even under a civil conspiracy tethered to those alleged torts. And in any event, those are going to all be subject to a two-year statute of limitations, but that doesn't get the Texans completely off the hook within the NFL, because now what's come across Roger Goodell's desk is information that the Texans were aware of this alleged sexual misconduct. I mean, for crying out loud, they, 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 they supplied the NDAs. Their director of security, not some low-level employee, but the director of security, you know, gave Watson an NDA, put it in his locker. To me, that that sort of indicates some higher-level awareness 
that there may have been some sexual misconduct. And the National Football League has to take a, a closer look at this. And, 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 you know, based upon this knowledge coming to light and this in, new information coming to light, the Texans, the, the individual employees who, who knew about this information, are they guilty of conduct detrimental to the game of the National Football League? Did they violate in any way any of the league's domestic violence or personal, not, not domestic violence, but the personal conduct policy? Because you're not preparing an NDA just because of a, a regular massage, you're, par- you're preparing an NDA with the expectation that maybe there was some sexual activity. And that should be a red flag for the National Football League, both as to the individuals involved and organizationally in terms of discipline in the way of fines and loss of draft picks. So, Dan, I mean, we have to watch it from the NFL discipline level. So, I, I you know, we've been clear that uh, at least by all reports, the NFL was trying to come to a decision on suspension. I'm going to even just say punishment in general, trying to wrap up this Watson matter by the end of the summer. But certainly the story just took a turn over the last week or two. So maybe it's they're going to need more time. Who knows? Dan, I think this brings to an, an interesting point, well, in at least the, what the Browns knew, what the Texans knew. So I, I guess let's let's go here. This is the part where, Dan, you and I really laid into the story. And, and since this point in time, we didn't hear much from – Harden or Busby, these guys have since since percolated. But the day that the Browns signed Watson to the $230 million contract, that big Watson sweepstakes where everyone was kind of going after him and doing taking interviews, the Browns are very clear that they did their due diligence. Meanwhile, Tony Busby on the other end said, well, not sure how you did your due diligence when nobody spoke to me. No one spoke to my clients on the team side. So, Dan, as we sit here today in the middle of June, I got a, a hypothetical for you, okay? If you knew everything that we knew today, you back then, right? You had somehow a, a crystal ball and you could see everything that was known and publicly on in the middle of June. Would you, Dan, have given Deshaun Watson a $230 million guaranteed contract, knowing exactly what we know today, not what we knew back then? But that's not the salient question. The salient question is, what should the Cleveland Browns reasonably have known when they entered into the contractual relationship with Deshaun Watson, they certainly knew that he was under investigation by the NFL. He was under investigation by, you know, sort of the, the criminal authorities. There was a grand jury proceeding and it, he'd been sued by 23 women for alleged sexual misconduct. And they, they knowing all that, they went into a, uh, a lucrative guaranteed $230 million contract, knowing all these things about Deshaun Watson. And I think it's awfully convenient that Victim number 24 becomes their out, their basis for terminating the contract with cause. If this were the federal court, if this were the federal court of the state of conduct detrimental, Judge Daniel Wallach would dismiss uh, the Cleveland Browns action for declaratory judgment to declare the contract null and void as, as being violated for cause. That would be a specious argument uh, in light of what they had already known about the case the case says, and the further due diligence that they could have done. They could have waited. They could have waited for the outcome of the NFL investigation. They jumped the gun because they were in a quandary and wanted to get a, you know, a number one quarterback and put their franchise back on the right course. So if this were Judge Wallach and the state of conduct detrimental, the Browns lose. But in reality, this is the court of Roger Goodell. And conveniently for the Cleveland Browns, there is an arbitration provision in just about every standard player agreement, which makes disputes arising out of the contract between the player and the team uh, subject to mandatory arbitration. And guess who the arbitrator is, Dan? Roger Goodell. Absolutely. And that ties into the age-old problem of whether uh, 
players can ever get forget objectivity whether they can get a fundamentally fair proceeding when the team is trying to get off the hook for a nine-figure guaranteed payment and they also happen to be the same company that's contributing to roger goodell's salary but unlike the john gruden scenario that's not subject to collective bargaining uh, the nflpa and the nfl have collectively bargained that uh the commissioner of the National Football League will oversee and arbitrate disputes between the player and the team arising out of his contract. So in the world of the National Football League, uh, Roger Goodell can rule in almost any fashion he wants. And the Cleveland Browns have all the leverage. They have the quote unquote home cooking in an arbitral forum in which their employee, so to speak. Dan, you said my question wasn't the salient question. I think that's because your answer to that question was know that nobody in their right mind would give Deshaun Watson $230 million knowing what we know today. And I think that tells you, um, just to kind of further your point, the Browns said they did their due diligence. I, I can't imagine that they knew this. I would be very, very surprised if they knew everything that we know today still gave them that money. So Dan, that leads to this interesting point uh, brought up by a friend of yours. I was going to say a friend of the show, but he's not a friend of mine. He's a friend of yours. Mike Florio had a whole article out whether the Browns might be able to void the $230 million guaranteed on that deal. And he spoke about, you know, with respect to the Texans, that it's a, or with respect to the Browns, it's a fully guaranteed contract to the extent that certain things were disclosed in writing. How well this, this uh, written material kind of spelled out what, what could possibly amount to a voidable incident. So I would think, Dan, if it was drafted properly, and we had a long conversation about drafting in the St. Louis Rams episode with that uh, indemnification clause. I think if it was drafted properly, I, I think any type of conduct related to massages or masseuses, you know, with that same common nucleus of facts, I, I think that that should be protected, right? That the Browns really did their due diligence. They shouldn't be able to void a contract based on the same common nucleus, whether it was the 28th or the 29th woman that filed yeah. suit. They knew about 22. So with all due respect to Mike Florio, I think that's a non-issue. I don't. I, I think a, as long as the thing was properly drafted, I think the Browns uh, made their bed and they have to lie in it, so to speak. Well, there are two. There are going to be two issues ultimately if this were really adjudicated in a in a, in a true legal fashion and not decided by non-lawyer Roger Goodell. There's the issue of inquiry notice. The Cleveland Browns certainly were an inquiry notice that there were all these issues pending and they had every ability to investigate further. And then there's also on the on the flip side of it, the issue of concealment. If uh, Deshaun Watson didn't you know, disclose that there could be other potential victims during this contract negotiations, was, it, was, the, was the question even asked by the Cleveland Browns? It's going to go into the course of dealings and the negotiations, what questions were asked. And, and in many ways, this reminds me of the Antonio Brown signing bonus battle with the New England Patriots and the Oakland Raiders. And remember, you know, it all, it's all going to come down to how the contract breaks down. Uh, the portion of the, the portion of the, of the $230 million contract that's allocated to signing bonus. And I don't have his contract breakdown in front of me, but if to the extent that the signing bonus, he's earned it already, that can't be clawed back. It can't be clawed back unless he goes to jail, holds out or can't deliver his services. And there's a possibility that a suspension might sort of void some aspect of that. So we're going to have to look a little bit more closely at the between the signing bonus, the guarantees, and it could very well possibly be that 
you know, the signing bonus, whatever amount it is, that's sacrosanct and can't be forfeited by Deshaun Watson because we went through that in the Brown case. He settled with the New England Patriots and there's a long line of precedent and it's even built into the collective bargaining agreement that there are only four circumstances under which a signing bonus amount can be forfeited. So that issue is also going to have to be parsed, but it's a long road to go, but certainly uh, the fact that the arbitrator is Roger Goodell is a major factor in the Cleveland Browns' favor. But I think the facts militate heavily in favor of, uh, of Deshaun Watson based upon the inquiry notice that there were all these issues going on, yet they signed him anyway. Dan, I, you know, listen, I don't, I don't know if there's more much, to, much else to add on the facts. The, the part I wanted to get your take on, you know, these comments by Rusty Harden last week, I think they happened right after you and I recorded. Maybe it was the same day. But you know, in, in doing his media, Rusty Harden, I, I think, divulged what his case theory is going to be. And they've been pretty mum on, on what they were exactly going to say. Early on, the argument, at least that we heard from Rusty Harden, is that these women that are filing these suits, to, you know, that, that, you know, we don't know if they can be trusted. We don't even know their names. I don't know, whatever you want to say. The implication was that these women were lying. And then uh, the next round of interviews, maybe this, one of the recent rounds, Rusty Harden said that three women engaged in consensual sexual acts with Deshaun Watson, which... Okay. You know, that's, that's certainly a change. Okay. And then Dan, this last one, you know, it's, it's a really ill-advised comment by Rusty Harden, but you know, that essentially it's not, it's not necessarily illegal to, to get a happy ending. I'm not going to describe what a happy ending is on this podcast. Uh, Rusty Harden essentially did it, but he said, it's uh, you know, it, it's not illegal as long as you don't pay extra for it, or you don't get something extra in compens in, you know, consideration for it. And it's not illegal to make someone feel uncomfortable. I just thought they were such such ill-advised comments. And then he tried to walk it back and say it was all a hypothetical. Dan, I, I think that's that's what's going to be the argument here, that Watson time and time again was propositioning these massage therapists to do more. And whether or not they said yes doesn't seem to be in dispute. It seems like they said no. And then Watson, whether either physically by his mannerisms or his, I don't know, thrusting, whatever you want to call it, suggested that he wanted more, whether that crossed the line with in terms of sexual assault. And if that's Harden's argument, I'm not feeling as strong about the defense as I was, you know, um, weeks ago. Yeah. You know, Dan, I think Rusty Harden has a you know, sort of a national reputation as a trial lawyer. He's one of the best in the country. He's won a lot of acquittals for his client, but he's doing he's he's doing Watson a disservice here with these constant responses and volunteering information. The first lesson a lawyer always tells his client in an interview or a deposition is don't volunteer anything more than is absolutely necessary. And Harden seemingly has diarrhea of the mouth. He can't help himself. And he's volunteering a little bit too much information that's placing his client in jeopardy civilly with the National Football League and who knows, potentially with law enforcement. So uh, I, I think this is a really interesting uh, you know, lesson or, or you know, lesson about publicity and trying to gain sort of control over the narrative. I think Harden has done his client more harm than good. Yeah, so Dan, I, I guess this will we'll close on this. Yeah, I think Watson's got maybe a little bit to be mad at Harden about for that recent round, but if I'm Harden, I'm probably a little bit mad at Watson because, uh, you know, what Watson, uh, you know, Harden is saying he didn't know the name of the 24th accuser. So that tells me that's code for saying my client didn't tell me everything. That's the only way I'm, I'm reading that. Dan, I, I don't have anything else to add on Watson. I feel like we've... One fact that, uh, you know, I was, I was discussing the signing bonus being sacrosanct of the $230 million, uh, that the Cleveland Browns guaranteed him, $45 million of that is in the form of a signing bonus spread out over a certain number of years. So any attempts to void the contract for cause are not going to uh, uh, jeopardize 
or shouldn't jeopardize the $45 million signing bonus unless he holds out or goes to jail or any one of those four narrow circumstances. So I would say about, uh, you know, 20% of his contract is, is um, you know, can't be clawed back by the Browns. They have no case given the fact that they guaranteed that money to him in the form of a signing bonus. A signing bonus is earned when you sign the contract. Dan, it's a good point to end it on. Uh, we said uh, before last year's football season, this has gone on for a year and a half. We boldly proclaimed not to take Deshaun Watson in fantasy. And uh, listen, we have Underdog Fantasy as our sponsor here. They do season-long best ball leagues. You can draft Deshaun Watson if you want. In the Underdog League, use our code uh, CONDUCT for a hundred thousand, a hundred. I was about to say 100,000 match bonus. That would be great. It's a $100 match bonus. Legal advice, do not take Deshaun Watson in best ball fantasy, DFS, or any type of fantasy. Unless you can get him for a peppercorn. You know, if you get him for a peppercorn, I guess I would take a flyer on him. What is what is the conversion rate on peppercorns? I don't know what that is. <laughs> Definitely less than cryptocurrency, uh, but certainly- Currency is a lot, Dan. <laughs> if, there were, if there were currency based upon first-year contract law, I think peppercorn- would replace NFTs, cryptocurrency, but uh, he is absolutely, I would think, almost worthless. You take a flyer on him for a low price, for a bargain price, but I'm not I'm not taking him an underdog, that's for sure. And uh, on that, Dan, you talk about first-year contracts. A reminder, this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. Criminal law, contract law, fraud, first-year contracts. Uh, that's where uh, Themis certainly comes in. If you're studying for the bar right now, uh, which many of you are, we appreciate taking a study break with us. For our young lawyers, our sports fans, our media people, uh, for our Watson episode. If you have any questions, certainly just drop us a line, condetrimental at gmail.com. Dan, I think we can wrap. I think we're good. Yep. Feel yep. good? I, absolutely. Let's, let's get let's get ready. Let's go Rangers for game for pivotal game five at Madison Square Garden. You know, I think this was uh, merited its own a standalone episode. And I think we covered a lot of ground today looking at Watson's legal case from a number of new angles that I don't believe anybody has attempted to tackle. So, uh, you know, just great episode, Dan. And uh, thanks for doing this on such short notice. We're on it. We'll continue to follow this story, the PGA live dispute. If you haven't checked it out, listen to our last episode, but as always, Dan and I uh, tend to be at the intersection of sports and law covering that very, very closely for Dan, myself, the conduct detrimental family. We will see you next time on another episode. Conduct detrimental. 